Alistair Caruso, uh, who is, uh, among other things, a PhD student out of Concordia and the co-chair of Capital Pride in Ottawa. We discuss an article he recently published through LinkedIn and the Institute for Research on Public Policy called mm -hmm. History Isn't Repeating Itself on LGBT Rights. And that is concerning. Now, how and why uh, will be the uh, the bread and butter of our conversation a little later on. TBD. Now, before we get into that, mm -hmm. I want to talk about Fruit Loops, but I think, yeah, let's actually let's talk. Let's start off with we're going to start off with Fruit Loops. Okay, okay. that's what. Um, first of we all, the, the far. Yeah, 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 yeah. First of all, the far superior breakfast cereal is Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Hands down. I will hear nothing else. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I, the best wide margin. I actually have an inroad to a, a, a Meme because uh, I am gluten intolerant. So my favorite one, there's these like sweetened corn puffs that taste like off-brand Captain Crunch. But they're okay. famous because on the cover of the, the, the packaging, there's like this really calm looking gorilla. And that calm-looking gorilla on the front of the gluten-free corn puff cereal is the basis for the Ruffle My Ghibli's theme uh, meme. <laughs> so there have been times, like when it first came out, I was like, yeah, I like that stuff. And then, I, it, you know, it does not ruffle my, my – and I was just like, yeah. It doesn't ruffle your Ghibli's? No, 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 yeah. It, it's uh, – I mean, breakfast cereal as a thing is – I don't know. When you're an adult and you think about it, you're like you're feeding your child dessert for breakfast. I don't know if you ever – Do you know what my favorite – Cereal was growing up. What's that? Above and beyond cinnamon toast crunch. Muesli. Muesli. <laughs> I know. I know. I was channeling my inner eighty-year-old uh -huh. man uh, from a very young age, and muesli mm -hmm. with like random raisins and things was uh, was my jam. Now, no, I mean that. Why? Why? When I was a kid, why, I would I would raid the baking goods cupboard. My brother would steal all the chocolate, and I would eat all the dried apricots. So. Little eight-year-old wow. stealing dried fruits. I mean, I'm I'm there with you on the born and eighty-year-old woman thing. Yeah. Anyway, Absolutely. sorry, we're, we're talking about Fruit Loops. So back in I want to say like June or July, it was a while ago. Um, they Fruit Loops or Kellogg's, uh, specifically the Canadian branch of Kellogg's, okay. teamed up with Boys and Girls Canada and um. Another organization whose name I'm forgetting, I think it's Kids Press, which is a branch, it's a publisher, it's a children's publisher. Um, I think it's part of the Chorus Entertainment Group. Okay. And they released a bit of a collaboration just to promote books, stories for children to read that are free. And that's about the gist of it. Okay. Uh, there are you can get them on the front of books um, of boxes. Sorry, uh, there is Maggie's chopsticks, uh, which is one of the books about a little girl who everyone keeps telling her how she's using her chopsticks wrong, mm -hmm. and then in the end, uh, spoiler alert, but uh, her mum says everyone uses them differently. It's fine. You know, there's no right way to use chopsticks. So uh, that's a, where you a... are in the world, because in some places there is a right way and a wrong way, and people will stare at you if you use them incorrectly. But it, like when I was in China, when I lived in China, they 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 did have a thing that, and not only that, but the way that you held your your chopsticks it was kind of like reading the tea leaves, like where you held your chopsticks and how you they 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 had like this like zodiac personality theory based on how you held your chopsticks. It was weird and fascinating. It was one of those things that everybody believes in, but nobody believes in. They're all like, it's nonsense, but let me tell you all about it. 
Uh, I yes. kind of want someone to read my chopsticks now. <laughs> like that, that wants to, I want that to happen. So, Ooh. and there's other ones and they, they're all about kindness yes. and community, you know, uh, going up by mm-hmm. Sherry J. Lee, illustrated by uh, Charlene Chua, um, mm-hmm. is about an elevator. Everyone's been invited to a party on the 10th floor. And uh, she goes up with her dad and then, uh, you know, the, the elevator stops and on gets the Sanchez brothers, sorry, the mm-hmm. Santucci brothers. And then mm-hmm. the Miguel family joins in and then Mr. Kim joins in. And it's just about the diversity of people that you might bump into mm-hmm. in an elevator where everyone is going to the same party. It's okay. very exciting. Okay. Uh, there's other great books. I'm not going to go through all the books because honestly, that would just be too much. It's about riding a bicycle, a school that plants a tree, for, uh, a village that plants a tree for every girl that's born. But they also have a collection by Fruit Loops and Big Boys and Girls Canada, BGC, where they curated some stories, some podcasts. We're going to be playing 30 seconds of Different is Okay by Tiptoe Giants, uh, as available on Spotify, uh, just to give you a, qu- a quick, a quick sense here. Her and she wins first place. Smile, say hi as she rolls by. Give it a try. Different is different, and that's okay. We're all a little different in our own way. Different is different, and that's okay. We're all a little different in our own way. drums in the band at school they don't feel like a boy or a girl we learn to say them and they and that's okay different is different and that's okay We're all the liberty people i forget what their name I'll, I'll look it up now in a second but they have decided that they're going to boycott kellogg's and specifically yeah. fruit loops um for promoting you know the 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 trans inclusion and obviously the, the books were generic you know i how do i use my chopsticks oh i met somebody on an elevator very much about kindness friendliness you know particular episodes from kid focused podcasters that are out there you know it's it's these children's songs that everyone hates but you have to play for some moral obligation, you know, and I think overall it it was pleasant. Like the the bulk of the stuff you get is pleasant. It's the kind of thing where if you have a kid that maybe lives in the city or lives mm-hmm. going, you know, whatever, and you and they meet all kinds of people, you know, they meet they might meet a young girl who races on a wheelchair yeah. and goes zoom, you know. I, it was yeah, Fruit Loops is all over the news for this boycott originating primarily out of the U.S. Okay. For a Canadian promotion that barely mentions in passing mm-hmm. trans folks. Um, so th- these are little books that are attached. Yeah, it's like ebooks. You can look at ebooks. Some of them are published like ebooks. Some of them are podcasts. Wait, how, Some how of are them they are podcasts or ebooks? Bedtime stories. Box. Is it like a, a QR code? Yeah, it takes you to a website. Oh, okay. Well, just okay. So here, here's my solution to that. Don't let your kid access it if you have a problem with it. Like it's, it's really not. I don't know. I, I, I have 
very little sympathy because it, it, it's as an adult, you it's really easy, especially if the kid's like six years or under to control the media that they consume. It's really not that hard. Uh, when my brother had his kids, he hated children's music, but he did manage to find an artist who, uh, you know, you can like print out your own music box paper strips. Um, so this guy basically made music box versions of Rob Zombie and Metallica. And that's what my brother would listen to uh, with his kids because it was something they they both liked. It sounded like a lullaby, but my brother knew in his heart that it was Dragula. So it, it, there, it's not that hard to find something that that sort of cuts it both ways. And there, there are, you know, there are people from... I don't know various religions and they say you know this isn't very consistent with you know judaism or islam or christianity or or what have you and they they come across media for children they're like these are not the morals that i want to teach or these are the morals that i want to teach but i want them to look different i want them to to feel different they're all alternative media you don't have to boycott all of fruit loops because yeah. you want your kids to consume something else just have them consume something else it, it's not that hard well what I what I will say to that is, I, I mentioned later in the in the interview, you know, we recently did our citizenship test. We've been mm -hmm. kind of really diving in on what it means to be Canadian, mm -hmm. and multiculturalism is foundational to Canada and being Canadian. Mm -hmm. It says so. They tell every immigrant <laughs> that mm -hmm. it is foundational. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, and that you you don't get you don't put that in the study book without it being thoroughly vetted and reviewed mm -hmm. um not a fan of the music but i also don't have small children which is a, a sometimes a blessing but <laughs> that i feel like it was it was mums for liberty by the way um who have initiated uh the boycott i don't know moving away from breakfast cereal just yeah moving away to breakfast and let's jump all the way into nightlife okay. um in uh, in London, the GAY or Gay uh, Late Bar has finally closed its doors. Now, we've mm -hmm. talked about this iconic British gay bar that's been around for a bajillion years. Um, mm -hmm. And we talked about in the pandemic that a lot of uh, places really struggled. And mm -hmm. you know what the nail in the coffin for this particular gay establishment? What was that? Construction. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they just genuinely <laughs> keep going now that there's more construction for, I think it was like condos or something across the road. Mm -hmm. And and they were like, look, you know, the way that queer folks gather and, and celebrate changes, less demand than there was before. Mm -hmm. And then there was the COVID pandemic that wiped out so many. They struggled through that. And mm -hmm. then there was some recovery. And now they're just being strangled by construction. And the guy's gone, you know what? And enough is enough. I mean, like, there's this also, is, it's sad, but it's there's intergenerational differences here on how people access club spaces. So obviously, if you're looking at the boomies, you're talking about discotheques. If you're talking about early Gen X, you're talking about the 80s dance clubs. If you're talking about late Gen X, you're talking about raves in the 90s. If you're talking about, you know, early millennials, you're still talking about the club scene. But then things kind of taper off because over time, the number of people who go out to nightclubs on the weekend has has sort of dwindled. We don't have the dance culture we used to. We don't have the discotheque culture that we used to. Um, and it, it's just different people have different interests and in different things. The, the number of young people who drink when they go out has gone down. There's all sorts of numbers on that. There's There's numbers on people who stay in more, who... 
Um, actually, there's also an epidemic of friendlessness among younger people. And it's, I've gone out to clubs by myself, but that's because I just really like dancing and I knew a good club where I felt safe. So I would just go. But most people don't have that in them. Most people would never go to a club by themselves. So, I mean, it's just some of this is just club spaces are dying because clubbing is dying. The the dance halls that sort of started as a thing in the 50s and 60s and sort of peaked with the disco era, that culture of the West, well, at least in North America, is dying out. And it's shifting to festivals. So if you've ever seen a music video for something like Scooter, and you see these giant outdoor spaces with like 10,000 people and they're doing this weird Dutch style of, of house dance called Gabba. And they're all, you know, they're they're all doing this out in the field or they're doing, you know, the 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 shuffle or they're doing jump style or they're doing all these weird like house style dances. Um, that's the kind of thing that happens like twice a month, the kind of local bar that you can just be like, I don't know what to do. It's Saturday night. There's a local bar. Let's pop in and see what's happening. That culture is dying. And it's mm. sort of moving towards a special event kind of culture. And people don't go to bars the way they used to. People will, like, you and I, we've gone to pubs for a meal. But when was the last time you and I went out for a drink? Just for a drink? Yeah, well, it all sparked off when there was a tourist from Surrey. The, the, well, goes by the name of Bucky. The, the details beyond that are, are less important to the story. But this individual went to a bar that historically was a gay bar that transitioned to an anything goes bar and then recently transitioned to a just a bar. I'm not going to say a straight bar because they don't advertise themselves as heterosexual establishment. They're just a bar uh, who no longer targets the LGBT community. This this tourist from Surrey uh, went into the bar in Victoria and basically announced his presence as a gay man and local patrons took umbrage to that because they felt that he was interrupting their good times and basically told them where to stick it and <laughs> one thing led to another the the staff of the bar didn't really step in to protect him too much they basically said just step outside and the problem will go away and then eventually it, it all turned into a it was it was a to-do but it's not the kind of story that we would normally cover because it's Patron goes to bar, has negative experience. Nobody got hurt. It's not. Yeah, yeah. it's Shocking not an exciting front story. page cover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what it did do in Victoria is spark a conversation about the fact that there are no more gay bars there. And this is a growing story. We've been covering this basically since 2015. The, the sort of shrinking number of gay bars across Canada. And I would even argue across sort of, you know, the, the, the Anglosphere in general, gay bars have been sort of disappearing. And this is um, partly it is that intergenerational difference of people are just not going to bars the way they used to. Some of the people are just not going out the way they used to. And, and, and you're right, the, the pandemic and the lockdown really, really knocked that kicked that one while it was down, basically. Uh, and then there's also the issue of sort of general acceptance. A lot of people feel they don't have to go to a gay bar. They may prefer to go to a gay bar. Um, and I could say, like, as I mentioned earlier, I used to go dancing all the time. On average, I would have a better time in a gay bar. But the best nights that I ever had were just in good clubs. They mm -hmm. just advertise themselves as being a place for people who like dancing and liked good music to go and dance to good music. And they didn't target the gay clubs. Uh, they didn't target uh, the gay community. 
but they did make it very clear that they would not tolerate harassment. So any kind of shoving or yelling, you're out. No, zero tolerance. If they do that to you one two, time too many and the, the bouncers recognize you, you're just not allowed back in. So it's sort of a generic, they're not really there for the gays, but they're not going to tolerate anyone being harassed. Those are the places where I had the best nights. And a lot of people are starting to transition to sort of like, well, let's just go to a good bar instead of a gay bar. And often the gay bars are the the best bars, but sometimes they're not. It depends on, well, mm. it depends on what kind of dancing you want to do. Like if you want to go to like an 80s retro night, gay bars don't really do that kind of thing that much anymore. So you're going to go, you're going to go outside the community for that. Um, and there is this discussion about where social spaces are for the community now that bars are closing and they're not being reopened. A lot of people are starting to say, well, they're we need new gay bars. You know, if you have a, a city like Victoria where all the bars have closed, well, should we replace them? We need to replace them. Do we need to replace them? What would we replace them with if not? I, I can see, I don't think this is unique to, um, to Victoria, BC. Mm. I think Montreal, New York, and uh, well, Montreal a couple of has places. no problem with gay bars, <laughs> but they have a, a club czar or a nighttime mayor or, you know, yeah. these people who are designed and Ottawa, Ottawa has just launched uh, the similar position because uh, they they must be desperate to, to kickstart some kind of nightlife. Actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if I mentioned it to you. Um, we were coming out of, a, we went um, laser tagging. I think I, I told you when I forgot the word for the word squat. Um, we went to laser tag and we were like, oh, we should go out and do a 90s night somewhere, you know, just, you know, have a good time, dance with with music. And uh, I was like, oh, maybe this place or maybe that place or maybe this other place. Every one of them was closed. Well, um, there is an issue but... as well in Canada with nimbyism. And this is sort of related very distantly, but not completely unrelated to the housing crisis uh, where nimbyism is coming in. So everybody knows that uh, a good nightlife attracts uh young people it Drunks. attracts yeah, innovation um, you know. it attracts money it attracts tourism you know a good nightlife in a city is good for a city on many fronts but where do you put it nobody wants to hear the noise and this is mm. something that i've always found baffling that people don't know what to do with it because not to drive it home again too much but yeah when i lived in hong kong they had rules there about where you could put nightclubs and do you know where they put them I think it was the financial district, isn't the it? The financial district and industrial zones because no one is there at night. So in the case of um, Toronto, you'd put it on Bay Street. You know, mm -hmm. in, in the case of Ottawa, actually, we used to have one on uh, Spark Street. There was a gay bar on Spark Street and it was loud. And the closest house was like a five minute walk away. But there's all these tall buildings in the way. You couldn't hear it. Some of the best nightclubs that I've gone to were in old warehouses that were next to functioning warehouses. It was just, you know, it's there at night. And the greatest thing about the, the financial district is you have all this infrastructure there already. So you have people going out drinking. You don't want them to drive home drunk, but it's the financial district. You have all your streetcars and subways and buses. Everything's already there. You have the infrastructure that you need to get people from there to home already. Mm -hmm. And no one's there at night. You can be as loud as you want. 
But I think there is a conversation to be had about respect. And mm -hmm. we have had that conversation multiple times mm -hmm. about straight folks entering queer spaces. And I'm wondering if we put much thought, much thought into queer folks entering straight spaces. All right. Uh, that's all we've got or time non, for. Non-queer spaces. Non-queer spaces. I mean, yeah. a maternity ward, I would say. And even then, like, there's not many places that I would call heterosexual spaces. I mean, you're pretty solid there, the maternity ward. Like, there is, you know, like, it would be exceptional. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. All right. This is Jane Burke in a new track by Mika. And uh, after that, we have the conversation with Francesco Macalester Caruso. And uh, we will be back briefly at the end of the show to wrap up some other news. Caruso, who is P. 
PhD student studying trans uh, folks in Canada, um, as well as, I mean, honestly, I'm amazed that you're clocking more via rail mileage than I can I can dream of. Um, commuting between Montreal and Ottawa, as you are both at Concordia, and the co-chair of Capital Pride in the city of Ottawa. Mugs full of an introduction, but I am thrilled to have you join us. Thank you for having me, Luke. I'm happy to be here as well. Excellent. Now, when I uh, first saw this article, and it was I saw it through LinkedIn, and it's history isn't repeating itself on LGBTQ rights. That is concerning. Uh, you published it through the Institute for Research and Public Policy, uh, like I said, on LinkedIn. I feel like that is a that is concerning. Is it's not the biggest understatement that I've <laughs> I've read in a while, but it certainly stood out. So just for our listeners who haven't read the piece, you know, why why isn't history repeating itself on LGBTQ rights? So there's often this misconception among queer and trans people today that because conservative parties and conservative politicians have been so antagonistic towards our rights, especially in recent years, that this is how things have always been. There's a bit like this this impression that the progress on LGBTQ rights has been linear, it's been straightforward, and so we assume that things were worse before and they've gotten better. And certainly that's true for a number of our rights uh, that we've gained over the past few decades, but really... Um, conservative politicians' attitudes towards LGBTQ rights have changed drastically over the past four decades. So in my article, the example that I talk about, uh, or the, the element that I talk about specifically is the use of the notwithstanding clause and how conservative politicians, especially in the 80s and 90s, when there were a lot of court cases that were coming out in favor of queer and trans people, um, Conservative politicians really resisted calls to use the notwithstanding clause to go back to the status quo and prevent queer and trans people from having their rights um, implemented. So even if we have the impression that uh, conservatives today are very antagonistic towards our rights, that doesn't mean that it always was the case. Even if they certainly weren't always friends, they were not necessarily uh, the, the hyper evil villain uh, that we sometimes imagine in hindsight. I think that's a really interesting uh, sort of delve into history. We kind of have this rose-tinted view of, you know, things were, were dreadful before and, and uh, you know, it's, it's never going to be quite that bad. I do wonder if that perspective is more indicative of gay men, cis gay men in particular, cis white gay men in particular, particular, uh, says this is white gay man. But... You know, I do I do wonder if that's part of it is like, oh, well, you know, well, I'm fine. I'm OK. You know, I can have kids. I can be gay at work. I can get married. I can file taxes and have access to the same benefits as others. I can access my partner's pension. Um, I don't know if you can, but it seems like a thing you could do. Um, you know, like all of these rights exist. It's fine. Like I am fine. And screw the rest of you. You know, is is there a sense of, you know, queer progress stopped once gay men felt like, okay, our job's done. I'm going to brush my hands of this and walk away. 
Absolutely. I would say there's definitely, so in uh, the kind of political science policy literature, the big debate, and we also find this in community, the big debate that we discuss is that between assimilationists and liberationists. So the assimilationist camp is much more along the lines of how you described it, Luke. So uh, let's, you know, emulate the straight cis heteropatriarchy as much as possible, which is to say, let's get married, let's have a pension, let's have 2.5 children in the white picket fence. And the more that we can assimilate into that mainstream straight cis world, the more successful we'll be as citizens. And, you know, I think that the reason why that perspective was so popular is because it had been largely successful again, for the white cis gay men, usually, uh, in the 90s and the 2000s with the advent of same-sex marriage. The other camp, the liberationist camp, which is more in line with, um, you know, trans rights, uh, sex worker rights, uh, bringing in a racialized and BIPOC folks uh, to the forefront of the movement because they've always been um, the ones leading this work. That camp has been more or less neglected by the mainstream LGBTQ rights movement. And now today, we're kind of seeing a, a bit of a reversal in the sense that we've gotten same-sex marriage, we've gotten all of those economic benefits if you're in a, you know, a, a couple, um, we've gotten our anti-discrimination legislation. And yet, despite all of this, despite the anti-discrimination uh, approach being very well entrenched in Canadian legal, the Canadian legal system, we're still today seeing conservative politicians who want to dismantle that. So I think it has been a bit of a wake-up call to folks who are maybe more in the assimilationist camp for whom things had been going very well up until now. We're now seeing, oh, wait a second. If we don't actually stay vigilant, if we don't actually keep actively defending our rights instead of just passively assuming they're going to continue into the future, we may be in for a rough ride and it may uh, kind of the rug may be pulled out from under us if we don't pay more attention to what's going on. I think that's a really... I mean, that's that. It's an interesting take, and I do wonder for our listeners. You know, even me, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about you know how am I worse off now than I was a year ago, and you know, it, it may not be me personally, but if I lived in Saskatchewan and I had a trans child, then yes, I am worse off now than I was a year ago, because regardless of what my child would want, they can be outed at school, and. That is not the case that it was six months ago. And I think that where you know the legislation is happening, it is rolling out. With every successive leadership uh, election that we've had in the Conservative Party, the social conservatives have really been flexing their muscles. So um, now, you know, today we have the federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, who, um, you know, I want to make clear, has been very clear that is not he's not interested in reopening the abortion debate. Um, However, he has been very uh, willing to um, kind of signal, send these signals that he has the social conservatives on side, which kind of brings us to the second part of your question, which is, uh, how does this compare to the abortion issue? So really, the abortion issue has always been a bit of um, uh, a helpful tool to the Liberal Party, especially when it feels like it's slipping in the polls. So it'll try to to beat the Conservatives over the head with the issue of abortion to gain votes. And that has been more or less successful, depending on the election. Like you said, um, in the mid-2010s, it was more successful than it was towards the end, uh, the last few elections that we've had. Um, 
But really, the difference here between the abortion issue and trans rights specifically is that abortion is widely accepted uh, by the Canadian population. So ever since the Morgenthaler decision that struck down the criminalization of abortion, uh, Canadian public opinion writ large has been very in favor of allowing um, people who need it access to abortion services. And it's been, you know, that's been kind of the, the consensus even among the centrist wing of the Conservative Party. Certainly, uh, they don't want to reopen the debate, even if the, the social conservatives want to. Uh, with trans rights, on the other hand, the support, the public support is much less entrenched. It's much less longstanding. So uh, trans rights in Canada really picked up steam in the mid-2000s when we started seeing anti-discrimination legislation add the mentions of gender identity and gender expression as prohibited grounds of discrimination. So sexual orientation had been protected in the uh, 90s, really. That's when case law really recognized uh, sexual orientation as a protected ground under the Charter's equality rights. But uh, trans rights took a little bit longer to develop. And so they haven't gotten internalized by Canadians as being uh, as much of a Canadian value. So when you look at public opinion for same-sex marriage, for example, the vast majority of Canadians are in favor of it. But then when you look at, for example, right now, the issue of uh, trans inclusion in schools or trans affirmative school policies, uh, public opinion is not at the same level at all. And so I think conservatives are sensing that even if it may, well, it remains to be seen if federally it'll be a, a winning uh, subject uh, next election. But uh, conservatives are willing to bet their chances on trying a new strategy out that may please their social conservative partners. You know, that's what I was thinking. I was wondering if parental rights, which is how it's been framed in the in the conservative dialogue, is you know not only just a, a dog whistle to that social conservative base, but also, and I hate to say it a softer target, you know, an, an easier target. You know, trans kids are maybe, I mean, it's in terms of just numbers, numbers of Canadians, one in a hundred people are uh, trans-ish according to the census, give or take. And when we think about kids, that's an even smaller percentage. So it is, it is a tiny number of people who are actually impacted um, and able to make it personal. But yeah, maybe they've gone for a, a smaller uh, a smaller target, a softer target. But I'm not convinced that going for and 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 channeling that social conservative progress uh, and aiming at trans kids is really the the solution. I think and there seems to be some evidence indicating that perhaps this isn't the the electoral win, the vote getter that uh, that so that social conservatives seem to think that it is. I'm looking at the recent uh, provincial election in Manitoba, where parental rights was really on the ballot between the choice between the uh, Conservative Party there and uh, I think it was the NDP. And then likewise in the UK, almost every by-election in Britain in the last year, the Conservatives have robustly lost by significant swings. Um, and trans rights has been right at the forefront of the political dialogue in the UK. So it seems maybe we're just starting to get an inkling now that this isn't going to work. But is that fast enough? Is electoral change, electoral consequences fast enough? 
or are we still losing out in the meantime? And I'm referring here to the use of the notwithstanding clause and kind of coming back to your your core piece. Um, you know, what do you think? Do you think that, you know, uh, with, will the will of the people win out uh, and will that be quick enough? I'm certainly hopeful. It's definitely true that there are some signs that the parental rights agenda may not be as potent as the conservatives are hoping. Uh, I want to preface this with the fact that there are um, public opinion polls out there that show that there actually are quite high levels of support for arguments around parental rights. Um, so uh, I don't have the numbers uh, right in front of me, but something off the top of my head was something like 65 to 70 percent of respondents, Canadian respondents in a survey, agreed with the statement that um, parental rights are being undermined and that parents should have more say over uh, the decisions of their children to be referred to by a different set of name or, or pronouns. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the potential that uh, the parental rights argument has. Um, if only not, if only to to better hone uh, queer and trans activists' arguments against that, because there is a great argument to be made, for example, about parents of trans youth. Where are their parental rights? Um, but 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 I digress. So I think we're definitely seeing uh, certain jurisdictions fail on the on the argument with trans rights. Um, I think the caveat with that is also that. Um, Parental rights or attacking trans rights have sometimes been used by conservative politicians and parties who are already on the, the, the way out. So your example of the conservative party in the UK who has been there, who, who's been in place for, for quite a number of years and who has seen uh, a, a lot of drama and not always the best news coverage of it. I think that they may have been trying to use trans rights as a lightning rod and it just wasn't sufficient to dig them out of their hole. But certainly you're seeing, for example, in Saskatchewan, where the notwithstanding clause was used, um, the public really, there is a strong level of support for that measure. In New Brunswick as well, where this type of bill originated, um, there is considerable levels of public support, so much so that the premier of New Brunswick, who is the one who introduced this type of policy in the first place, um, felt confident enough to threaten a new election. He basically called the bluff of his more moderate members in caucus and said, oh, you don't think this is a winning issue? I think it is. I'm ready to call an election if if uh, you want to test this out. So I think it remains to be seen exactly how powerful it is uh, as an argument to convince voters. But certainly the concerning part is less, it, it's less the argument that's being presented, though that is, of course, concerning, but it's more so the processes that we're willing to follow to achieve, uh, to implement that argument. So the use of the notwithstanding clause itself was very controversial in the past. So conservative governments uh, across different provinces and even federally have been very, very reticent to use the notwithstanding clause because they know it's going to... It, it, it either uh, indirectly implies or overtly acknowledges that it is trampling on rights. Like that's the whole point of using the notwithstanding clause is that you're saying this legislation is going to operate notwithstanding a set of rights. Um, that used to ha carry heavy political consequence. It was very rarely invoked. And now you're seeing, to be honest, conservative governments, because we're not seeing uh, left wing like NDP or centrist liberal governments use it. It's very much a center right policy uh, plank. Um, 
uh, that they've been willing to use on a number of issues. So we saw, of course, Quebec, which has been uh, the province that has used the clause the most in history for um, cultural and linguistic reasons as well. But even in Ontario with Doug Ford, who is willing to use it, um, there are signs that the um, social landscape or the political landscape that had prevented um, politicians from using the notwithstanding clause is shifting. And it seems that the public is at the very least becoming less distressed with its use, if not, you know, not opposing it entirely. So um, there is certainly a lot of work to be done to make sure that the rights that we have gained don't go back to a political argument when it has been settled case law for quite some time now. I mean, I think your your reference to settled case law um, reminds me of the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade in the States. You know, something that people thought was concrete in the foundation they stood on, will not move, uh, just got toppled over in, in the U.S. Um, it's interesting because uh, I've been recently doing my citizenship uh, test and and uh, just waiting for the, the, the oath ceremony. But as part of that, whole process you know one of the things that it keeps you know circling back to is canada is founded you know found you know founded on god and the rule of law and it seems like i mean god i'm like, mm, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm like i understand the history there but uh um i'll leave the radical reverend to uh to to flesh that out but the uh the rule of law piece i think is truly foundational going back to the magna carta to the 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 whole underpinning but the not within the standing clause is it's not a get out of jail free card it's a get out of courts free card you know how how is it that conservative premiers and uh the saskatchewan party um are able to just run roughshed over the courts have they been made toothless by this that's a great question so to get a proper understanding of the notwithstanding clause, I think it's important to to understand how it came to be in the first place. So, when um, you know Pierre Trudeau, Trudeau Senior, was um, pushing for the repatriation of the Constitution in the 1980s, um, which would lead up to the adoption of the Canadian Charter in 1982. Um, he was really the one pushing for a set of entrenched rights that were enforceable by the courts. So prior to the charter, Canada had what we call the Bill of Rights, which was a bill recognizing broadly similar rights as the charter does. However, that one was enforceable by parliament, which meant that if parliament wanted to contravene it, there was really no one that could tell them they couldn't. And so Trudeau Sr. was very adamant that the courts had to be the arbiters, so that way politicians could not, um, you know, just supersede them willy-nilly. Uh, and the conservative premiers, or on, many premiers, not just conservatives, but especially conservative premiers at the time, were very reticent to allow um, what they saw as parliamentary supremacy kind of wither away. So the agreement that they had come to, to for the pro uh, provincial premiers to agree to the charter was that they would insert the notwithstanding clause. Um, which would allow them to abrogate certain parts of the charter uh, for a period of five years. So I think that's important to note. The reason why we chose five years is because that's typically an election cycle. So the thinking goes, if a uh, government uses a notwithstanding clause and it is actually very unpopular, by the next election, they'll get kicked out and then it'll reset and then the rights will be restored. Um, and also, 
the other thing to note is that when the notwithstanding clause was created, it was never intended to be used preemptively. It was always used as a uh, mechanism of dialogue is what we call it. So basically, parliament establishes a law. The courts may say it's unconstitutional. This has to be changed. It goes back to parliament. The parliament decides whether the court decision stands or whether it wants to reassert its supremacy by using the notwithstanding clause. Um, and so... So basically, yeah, we've had this this mechanism that was really not anticipated to be used very much. It was supposed to be kind of a, a last resort type of thing. Um, and now we're seeing today, uh, really, it's becoming almost commonplace. It's becoming an issue that is not only reserved for these big, crucial debates that that a parliament feels is necessary to weigh in on, but it's also on issues that are just a bit more mundane, if I can use that. Obviously, it depends who you ask. But for example, um, in the Toronto, Toronto um, municipal election, Doug Ford had used the notwithstanding clause to prevent judicial challenges from his decision to redraw the boundaries of, uh, of, the, um, of the municipal ridings in the city. And so, um, yeah, just basically this used to be a very charged tool and today that just seems to be going away. It seems like politicians, especially conservative politicians, um, are not bound by the same rules that were uh, established when the notwithstanding clause was introduced. I mean, it's it's a concerning moment in history that we that we are in, especially folks who rely on the protections of the charter, folks who. Um, are maybe in the uh, opposing side of social conservatives. Uh, heaven forbid that be the case. But you know, it, it is. You know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, <laughs> and uh, we we try not to be. But realistically, I don't know that many political pundits out there who are not predicting the end of the liberal regime. You know, in terms of um, the very likely electoral defeat in the next election, I will be. Um, flawed <laughs> if they if they aren't defeated, and then Pierre Polyev will 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 step in most likely with current opinion polls sort of where they are. Um, in that stead, you know, is this going to be if conservative premiers are already using notwithstanding willy nilly? Is that a concern? with the potential of a conservative federal government and uh, whether or not things will will continue to be used, though this clause continue used, but at the federal level? I'd say it's certainly a worrying possibility. So I want to preface this by saying the notwithstanding clause has never been invoked federally, um, certainly not by the liberals who are, are very pro-charter, but neither by the conservatives um, no government federally has introduced a notwithstanding clause to trample over rights. That's not to say that it couldn't or wouldn't happen. Um, I think, again, referring back to how honestly popular, or at the very least less controversial, the decision to uh, invoke the notwithstanding clause is in Quebec, in Ontario, Saskatchewan now, and I think certainly you could make the case for uh, New Brunswick, which may be interested, and even Alberta in certain cases. Um, I think it's there's a very real possibility that if uh, the federal conservatives felt that they had uh, 
more to gain politically by invoking the notwithstanding clause, I think they would at the very least certainly consider it. Um, again, I want to make clear that there has been no indication so far that they will. They haven't talked about this. Um, but it's not to say that it couldn't happen. I would like to think that the next federal election will be a change election and not truly a an intentional election. So by that, I mean, I think people are more interested in voting out Justin Trudeau than they are voting in Pierre Polyev. The result will be the same, which is likely a conservative majority. But I think that the intentions that voters ascribe to their choice is very important as well, uh, which means that mm -hmm. if uh, the federal leader did overplay his hand and did invoke the notwithstanding clause, that may be a bridge too far for a lot of voters who just cast their ballot for the Conservatives simply because they didn't want the Liberals to be in, but they weren't necessarily ready to endorse a wholesale dismantling of queer and trans rights. I think you're absolutely spot on. I have been uh, in, you know, I'm in, I'm in Orleans, which, you know, bleeds red, literally, you know, it's, uh, it is a liberal stronghold. And uh, I've talked to a lot of young folks, early 20s, and they have every intention of voting conservative. Um, queer, young queer folks, young folks who I would never have guessed would have voted conservative. And it seems like there is that paradigm shift happening, that people are, are tired with the government in power. As far as I'm aware, in parliamentary democracies, no one has ever survived more than three terms. And so it is it is truly exceptional. Um, and yeah, the sands are shifting, but hopefully the sands of law and order uh, don't shift with it. Hopefully we can rest our feet on the concrete foundations um, of our charter constitutional rights and social norms and fingers crossed some of those social norms will survive a little bit longer than this particular government um thank you so much francesco for for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about this and uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show uh, as further news and and uh, uh politics develop I would love that. Hopefully more cheery stuff to discuss next time, but I would love that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. We'll be back just after this. Yeah. 
That was uh, C'était Salomon Romantique by Cote de Parette. And uh, folks will have to Google that to make sure I've pronounced it correctly. And uh, we have time for maybe one last story. Now, this one, Sebastian, I've been thinking Ooh. about the Roman Empire. Uh, well, I mean, I think about the Roman Empire all the time. I mean, I think that's weird. <laughs> It, it baffles me how often men think about it. But I, we're not here to talk about that meme by Garum. It is fish that is put into a pot to rot for six months, and it was Rome's favorite ingredient. That's fascinating. But anyway, sorry, go on. We're not here to talk about Garum or the Roman Empire. <laughs> I'm talking about very specifically mm -hmm. Elagabalus. Elagabalus? Ilagabalus, mm -hmm. E-L-A-G-A-B-A-L-U-S. Mm -hmm. Now, the North Hertfordshire Museum in England. Mm -hmm. So you can already tell this is a small museum in a pretty small place. Yes, uh, they have decided, yes. uh, out of politeness, uh -huh. that was a decision made, out of politeness, mm -hmm. they will now be referring to the Emperor Ilagabalus I'm mm. sorry for pronouncing this ancient emperor's name um, with she, her pronouns. Okay. Even and though the reason women were not allowed to be emperors in Rome, they weren't even allowed to govern or hold Senate positions, but yes. Okay. Now, this is... <laughs> that, the, the reason being is uh -huh. because uh, contemporary texts from the time and chroniclers uh, by the Roman historian Cassius Dio specifically okay. Okay. Quote the Roman Emperor, uh, like a, I'm just going to refer to them as the Roman Emperor from now on, um, mm. as saying, among many other things, mm. call me not Lord, for I am a lady, okay. which I feel like is pretty on the nose. And uh, this is apparently multiple times uh, they were referred to as a wife, mistress, and queen. Mm -hmm. um, specifically asked to be identified using the female versions of the time. Um, and this museum in Hertfordshire has decided that, the, frankly, the polite thing to do mm. thousands of years later is to actually use Malay okay. instead of Malord for this particular emperor. And uh, yeah, it's caused, understandably, a bit of a bit of a kerfuffle. So well, a it's... whole bunch of new people are thinking about that particular Roman emperor. Yeah, but it's it's historically foolish because uh, there are many Roman emperors who are referred to as women at the time. And that's that's what you refer to a Roman emperor when they consistently lose in battle. It was considered 
effeminate to be a bad warrior. And this Roman emperor in particular, or multiple Roman emperors really, because they were more focused on diplomacy and trade and less so on conquest and expanding the borders, were openly called women in their time. And some of them were like, well, fine, I'm a woman. I don't care. You know, like, whatever, call me what you want. I'm still the emperor. I'm still more powerful than you. Go, go stick it, you know? And I'm not sure that this is a good instance of a historical rereading of a man actually being a trans woman because, you know. But the, is it a historical rereading or is it maybe we finally listened? You know, no. when when the emperor is saying, I am not a lord, I am a lady, um, it doesn't get a huge, hugely more clear cut than that. The Senate would have ejected him if he was a trans woman. Like, it, it's well, the, the context matters. We're not going to settle Roman history today. Yeah. And uh, we've got a whole lot more of you thinking about the Roman Empire than were before. Uh, we're going to be playing out with Feel Like Home by Roxanne Pono. Uh, all of our songs this week were in French. Um, I have been Luke Smith. And I have been Aqueduct Lover Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Est forte, puis la porte est bien pleine. Ça sent la plainte faite par les voisins. J't'ai vu rentrer, on s'est souri. Tu sors de où, puis t'es venu avec qui? T'as fait couper tes cheveux, c'est extrêmement joli. Ça fait longtemps qu'on s'est pas vu, mais t'es pas quelqu'un qu'on oublie. Ça date de loin, mais j't'ai reconnu. Tout est Oh, mm-hmm.